0: Okay, so we're going to be in Mark 11. Now, I, I will say that uh, we're talking about the triumphal entry this morning. And though in a moment we'll read Mark 11, this, this is a text that is in um, every one of the four Gospels. Uh, this is the, the beginning of the, uh, the Passion Week, the Passion of Christ. I know that most specifically refers to those six hours he hung on the cross. But, but his Passion begins, without a doubt, on this day, and you'll see that in demonstrative form um, as he enters the city. And uh, all four gospel writers give substantial amount of ink to this passage um, and, uh, and this week. Uh, matter of fact, it's, it's uh, 33% of Matthew's gospel, 33% of Mark's gospel, 25% of Luke's, and 50% of John's. So uh, just focused on the events of the last week of Jesus's life. So we'll draw this morning from um, from various contexts as we uh, as we go through um, through the story of the triumphal entry. Uh, just a word on passion, it's, uh, it's one of my favorite human emotions. Um, I love that we all know what it is to be passionate about something, something that we care about. Uh, we see it a lot, sports bring a great platform for passion to be displayed as teams compete uh, for a victor's crown, for a victory. And, of course, March Madness is going on, and we see a lot of passion. My boys always wonder, um, once I don't have a dog in the fight, which is now, uh, they always wonder why, I, uh, why I'm always rooting for the Cinderella. Pretty much every game, I'm, I'm always going for the higher seed. And it's just so fun to see the passion they play with. And it's so fun if they can pull off the stunning upset, the passion displayed as they storm the court and among the it's like It's just fun to see passion. It's fun to see that striving after that victory come to fruition. Um, But who cares about basketball? It's baseball season, and uh, baseball began yesterday. Uh, It was supposed to begin earlier in the week, but we had rain, so yesterday both, all three of my boys that are playing had opening day, so two games, and and it it just, uh, a moment particularly tickled me in uh, uh, Luke and Jonathan's first game coach pitch, and Luke probably is bitten by the bug a little harder than all of us. He's definitely a chip off the old block here. He loves baseball with a great passion, and it was really fun. It was his, his first time on base of the new season, of the new year, just waiting nine months since the last game for this moment, and he's on, I think, second base, and his cousin's behind him in the lineup, and, and cousin hits, a, hits one to the fence, and so Luke's rounding third. I mean, he can trot home. He's easily gonna cross home plate, And um, but he's so excited. I had a good view. I was on the other side of the catcher, and I, I saw Luke come in, and um, I was just kinda ready to high five him or something, and, and again, ball's still rolling to the fence. And I could see about 10 yards from the plate, I could see that windup. He's just smiling ear to ear, so excited, and hands go back, and sure enough, he just Supermans it across home plate. Like nine months of pent up passion. (laughs) I mean, it was one to nothing. You know, first first (laughs) inning, second inning, first game. I mean, it was, uh, man, he just couldn't help it. And uh, I'm reminded constantly, again, I love the human emotion of passion. But all of our passion and our our most uh, wanting moments, uh, our most angry moments, angry for good things, our most zealous moments, uh, pale in comparison to the passion of Jesus Christ. Again, that passion most evident on the cross where he achieved the greatest victory that could ever be won. But you're going to see that passion begin, uh, and again, it began when he came, but you're going to see it begin to unfold in a very visible, tangible way in this text where he rides into Jerusalem. So if you stand to your feet, I would like to read to you from God's Word, Mark chapter 11, verse 1 through 10. And all four gospel accounts speak to this event. Here it is from Mark. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. This is the word of God for the people of God. The people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, as we look longingly at this historical event, at this text, I pray that we would not merely see what happened, not even merely see why it happened, but in the studying of the event and the understanding of the motive behind it, our hearts would be kindled afresh with a deep appreciation and gratitude and joy and hopefulness of a God who has seen us in our sin and loved us. You stir our hearts with passion for you, Lord Jesus. As I speak, I pray, God, that you would increase, that Jesus Christ would increase in this place as I decrease. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, this is the beginning of Passover week in Israel, so it's Sunday of Passover week. And um, the last Passover week that Jesus celebrates, of course, on this earth and what you must know about Passover is it's a time when uh, every Jew is required by law, every Jew within a huge radius of the city is required by law to come back and to uh, be a part of this, uh, this week-long feast, uh, which culminates with the sacrificing of uh, the lambs, lambs to be slain, uh, their blood uh, to be um, uh, spread over doorposts to remind the Jews, well, really of two things. One is to remind them all the way of 1,500 years ago when the first Passover feast happened, when uh, the Lord commanded Moses in the series of plagues that he would use to free his people from captivity in Egypt, soften the heart of Pharaoh, loose his hold, and send the Israelites out into the desert where they would wander 40 years before coming to the promised land. Well, at that time, the Lord said to Moses, here's what I want you to do. Um, it's the, the month of uh, Nisan, uh, on the on the 10th uh, day, I want you to take a lamb, and, uh, and you're going to take it into your home, and your family's going to get to know this lamb, Attached to this lamb. My kids would be all over fluffy if this were still happening. And then on the 14th day, though, here's what you're going to do. Dad, you're going to have to take the lamb and slaughter it. Now, that's going to involve an explanation. Uh, but you're going to slaughter this lamb, and you're going to take its blood, and you're going to smear the blood on the thresholds, on the doorpost. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send an. Angel. God's saying this. I'm going to send an angel of death through the camp. The angel of the de- of death will take the firstborn of every family and every flock, except where he sees blood on the threshold. Because here's what the angel of death will do. Wherever anyone is under the blood of a lamb, they will be spared from judgment. God could have chosen to spare the Israelites in any number of ways. He chose this one. Because in it, not merely would he uh, free them from bondage in Egypt, but he would continually point them, not just that once, but 1,500 years of Passover celebrations from thence to Christ, he would point them towards a day when he will ultimately send a final sacrifice, a lamb to be slain, that whosoever believes in him, they will be under the blood of the lamb, and they will be spared in judgment by grace, through faith, in the blood of the lamb. So the Israelites still gathering in Jesus' day, over 2 million, get, just, just get your mind around that, 2 million Jews flocking into the city, packing it out. They said over 255,000 lambs were slaughtered in this, at this Passover ceremony. Can you imagine? And, 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 and all this, this ritual still going, celebrating. God was faithful to free us from our captives and bring us into his land, but also remembering that one day he will. Ultimately, ultimately be faithful to send the final Passover lamb. By the way, this is why John the Baptist's ministry, his forerunning ministry, in the Gospel of John, he's right here at Bethany, and when he sees Jesus, do you remember his, the first words out of his mouth? He's there baptizing, offering a baptism of repentance, and he sees Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. There he is. This is why, Christ, uh, this is why Paul, writing to the Corinthians, calls Christ our final Passover lamb. That's what he is. He came to be slaughtered for the sins of mankind. Once and for all, this blood be shed as the final Passover sacrifice. We'll understand this, that at this point in Jesus' ministry career, he has, is at very serious odds with the uh, Jewish leadership. Um, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, specifically the Pharisees. Here, here was the problem. Uh, they were awaiting a, a Messiah, absolutely. They were trying to obey every jot and tittle of the law as they waited for a Messiah. They were looking for someone to free them from the oppression of the Romans. And the word came that this, um, this uh, kind of messy prophet from Nazareth, this meek and mild, this turn the other cheek, Jesus, some are saying he's the Messiah. He's claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. You don't claim that unless you're a blasphemer or you're God. And they're looking at him going, no, that's, that's not him. He's not the one that's going to get it done. And uh, Jesus saw their aloofness to the prophets. He saw their hard-heartedness because they were welled up with self-righteousness, which is uh, antithetical to the very nature of the gospel. They didn't see their need. He saw that they put a great yoke on the people in, uh, in the way they, 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 uh, they lorded over them, their spirituality, and the way they forced worship upon them. So he saw, and he called it out. He said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You look so great. Everything's all put together. And on the inside, you're rotting to death. They didn't appreciate that. Um, Jesus and the Pharisees were at serious odds. They wanted to kill him. They put out a, 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 a warrant for his arrest. And let me tell you what the talk of the town was. Two million Jews coming back to Jerusalem in just a couple weeks prior. At this town of Bethany just east of the city, Jesus had risen a man from the dead, Lazarus. You probably know the story, but he had raised Lazarus from the dead, and at this point, crowds flocked from Jerusalem to worship him as Messiah. They're saying, this is it. This is fulfilling the prophets of Isaiah. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. This is him, and the Pharisees come to a boiling point, one of many, but they say, this can't go on any longer. We've got to do away with Jesus. John's Gospel records a conversation they have in John 11, uh, just before the triumphal entry happens in John 12. Here's the talk. It was now almost time for the Jewish Passover celebration, and many people from all over the country arrived in Jerusalem several days early so they could go through the purification ceremony before the Passover began. They kept looking for Jesus. But as they stood around in the temple, they said to one another, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think? He won't come for Passover, will he? Meanwhile, the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly ordered that anyone seeing Jesus must report it immediately so they could arrest him. Two million gathered to worship Passover, and the talk of the town is Jesus. Is he coming? Public decree, you must turn him into the Pharisees if he comes. By the way, what's Jesus gonna do here? Like, he has to come. It's required by law. He's not merely a good Jew. He's a perfect Jew. And at the same time, he can't come. He'd be walking right into his death. Certainly imprisonment, torture, and sure death. So what will he do? If I had been advising him good thing I wasn't I said Jesus here's the deal you got to go you're 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 righteous and you've you've got to maintain your the righteous adherence to the law that only you have maintained perfectly you got to go but you you know make make sure somehow you got to go covertly like we got to find a back door like you've got it's got to be a very subtle entry and yet the passage we just read your bible probably has a subheading I think all four gospels have it it's not the subtle entry it's not the covert entry your Bible probably says what mine does, which is the triumphal entry. That gives you a hint. Jesus isn't going to stay away. He's not cowering back in fear. Again, he came for this very purpose. As Isaiah prophesied, like a lamb who would be led to the slaughter. He knows. He would say in the Gospel of John, this is my hour. Let the Father be glorified in what's about to happen. He knows. He said in that same passage, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. He knows. He knows. What's going to happen. Now the first thing I want to point out, verse one, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, is when Jesus sent the two disciples out. Now let, let, me, just, let me just stop and say this. Uh, the first thing I want you to notice, I just want to make some observations about a historical event this morning. The first is that he came from the east geographically. Um, uh, Jerusalem has uh, eight gates that you can enter and exit from. And uh, there is a prominent gate on the eastern side that's called the Eastern Gate. Makes it easy for a guy like me to remember. And uh, and, and it was very ornate, probably the most beautiful gate. It's called the Beautiful Gate. It's also called the Golden Gate. So if you ever read about the Eastern Gate, Beautiful Gate, Golden Gate, that's the same gate. It faces right over the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Isles, which is not much of a mountain. It's more like a ridge. Okay, and uh, and it faces up to there. Where on the other side of that is Bethany and Bethpage. Okay, so It's just important to note that Jesus is coming in from the east. Why is that important? Well, one, every uh, conquering king that had come in from the, uh, the Babylonian conquest to the Greek conquest to the Roman conquest to the Ottoman church conquest, before and after Christ, whenever a conquering king came in, they came in through the eastern gate. There was a pomp and circumstance to it. It was the golden ornate gate. It was the gate closely aligned to the temple courts. They would come in through the accompaniment of cheers and singing and great declarations. They would ride a white stallion. They would come through. They would go to the temple immediately, make sacrifice to declare themselves sovereign over state and religion. And uh, In Ezekiel's um, uh, book, y'all know Ezekiel's book pretty well? Listen, you don't want to get to heaven and meet Zeke. And, and, he you know, introducing yourself, I'm Hank, I'm Ezekiel. Ezekiel! And he goes, yeah, how'd you like my book? You, I'm just telling you, you want to know a few things, okay? I might want to increase those pages. Let me give you one. Let me give you, let me give you something to talk to Ezekiel about. Okay, Ezekiel 10, one of the prophecies he makes is, uh, uh, he sees, and by the way, this is at the time of Babylonian captivity. He, that, that came in three waves. Uh, Ezekiel was taken in the first wave. This is about 600 B.C., right, uh, right before the last wave's taken, maybe 586 B.C., And um, he has a vision from the Lord, Uh, he prophesies. And his vision is that um, as the people of God are being uh, taken into captive, the the very spirit of God that resided in the temple, God himself, the Shekinah glory of God. He had a vision where the glory of God um, marched out of the temple right up to the eastern gate and then left the city of God. It's really sad, it's like, like the heaviness, wow, the, the, the people and their uh, idolatry and their hard-heartedness, God's given them over to captors and he himself has left his people in a city. Now, next 33 chapters, uh, you get great troublesome prophecy about the weightiness of the idolatry, about what God will one day do in reassembling the dry bones in the valley and breathing life into them, and then you come to chapter 43, 44, and Ezekiel prophesies again. And he says, there will be a day, he looks at the future, and he says, there will be a day when the prince, who is God himself, so the Jews understand, this is Messiah the prince, will come again, and he will come the same way God exited. He will come back to the threshold of the eastern gate, and he will enter. I want you to hang on to that. The, the first thing I want you to say, it's significant that Jesus, that the text says he's on the Mount of Olives, he's coming through the Kidron Valley, he's coming in through the east. Most likely the eastern gate. Um, So significant was this, by the way, that when Suleiman the Magnificent in the uh, Turkish Empire, when in the 16th century, um, when he uh, came in, eastern gate, conquered pomp, circumstance, temple sacrifice, declaring himself king, the first thing he did when he understood the prophecy of Ezekiel through the Jews that he had conquered was he sealed up the eastern gate. So some of y'all, because he didn't want, I don't want any God prince to be coming in here and conquering me in my empire. And so he sealed it. it. To this day, you go. The eastern gate, sealed. It's a rock wall. Can't go in and, and go out. I don't think this has Jesus' concern, by the way. But he thought, this is what I must do because this prophecy will be fulfilled. Now listen, this is significant. Jesus coming in, from the east, the the talk is this is Messiah, this is the prince, the Pharisees are saying let's kill him. The drama of this moment. Again, one of the early historians said for Jesus to do what he did here was the most courageous move in the history of the ancient world. And as he begins to come in, look what he says here, he says to two of his disciples, go to the village in front of you, immediately as you enter it you'll find a colt tied on which no one's ever sat. Untie it and bring it, by the way, you know, don't. This is like a don't try this at home. Okay, I've spent some time on a farm. I've done a lot of dumb things, but when you try to ride an animal, okay, uh, uh, especially the fault, uh, the the foal of a of a donkey that's never been ridden. Uh, uh, I've never done that. I have I have tried to ride a bull that's never been ridden. I'll spare you the details, but it did not go well. Uh, you can't do this unless you are sovereign over creation. You can't say when they ask you, what are you doing stealing our donkey, tell them the Lord has need of it, and they'll say, oh, okay. Uh, You can't do this unless you're God himself. He says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away, they found the colt, tied the door outside in the street, they untied it, some of those standing there said, what are you doing? And they told them what Jesus said, and they let them go. Now, uh, I want to just stop again and ask, uh, make an observation, ask the question what is going on? Why is Jesus doing this? If you're like me, this, this doesn't seem like this will intimidate the Romans. What's he doing? Um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament in general is a conversation, it's a relationship between God and Israel. And central in that relationship is the promise of God. Not just of a land that he will give them, but through his people, the Israelites, that he will bring uh, a Messiah who ultimately saves them from their sin. That something happened back in the garden. That something happened back in the original covenant with with Adam and Eve that when sin entered, when they disobeyed God and ate of the apple, they lost relationship. They lost intimacy. They were separated from God. God said, in that moment, I'm going to deal with it. In that very moment, he said, look, one day I'm going to send one. He will crush the head of satan satan'll bruise his heel but he'll crush him i'm going to bring one one day who will redeem what is broken who will rescue my people and reconcile them to me the old testament is a is a relationship being established where it's every page of the old testament is, is whispering forward someone's coming someone's coming genesis all the way through malachi is anticipating you can't read your old testament i mean they're all expectant and growing anticipation for the coming of Messiah. Now, if you're a Jew in this day, you were raised, and your focal point is coming of Messiah. That's what we can't miss. Ironically, that's what we cannot miss. There's dozens of prophecies dealing with uh, where he would come from, where he'd be born, uh, what he would do, why he would do it. And if you're a Jew, you knew these prophecies. They were the earliest things you learned and made a part of your art. And one of the most famous ones that every Jew knew is in Zechariah chapter 9, 9. Look at this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. There's, something, there's, there's reason for rejoicing. Behold, your king. Now, by the way, this is long after uh, the time of, uh, of David's reign. So make no mistake, your king, singularly given like that, is no other king than the king. He's coming to you, righteous. There's only one who is righteous. And having salvation, there's only one who brings salvation. Look at this humble and mounted on a donkey. How about that? He's going to come humble and on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, again, if you're a Jew, this is one you know. We are expectant of a Messiah who is a prince to come from the east and who's going to be riding on a donkey. The, fo- the colt, the foal of a donkey. Um, there, There is there are folks that say, you know, I don't know that Jesus ever really claimed to be the Messiah. <laughs> uh, When Jesus said, go get me a colt the foal of a donkey to ride in from the east into Jerusalem, that's about as strong as a messianic claim as you can make. This was Jesus declaring himself to be the anointed one, the Son of God and the Messiah. And again, only because of the, only because their hearts were so soured, only because of their, anguish at the idea of Jesus, only because of their uh, bitterness that, that he would not come and conquer the Romans, did the Jewish leadership try to lead the people astray and say, no, he's not the one. But understand that Jesus knows the prophecy, every Jew knows the prophecy, he's purposefully fulfilling the prophecy. And I want you to notice as he does so, the reaction he gets. This is no accident, this is no coincidence. The people before him and behind him, look what they do. They spread cloaks on the ground, on the road, and they spread leafy branches. The Gospel of John says palm branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed, they were shouting, listen to what their chant is, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, now this, is, um, this is very interesting. This is not like, that wasn't like just first thing that came to mind. Somebody kind of started, by cheered in. This is a very specific, again, messianic declaration. Matter of fact, this is a, a portion of the Psalms written by King David called the Hallel, the Egyptian Hallel. It's, it's, uh, it's a great portion of the text, Psalm 113 to 118, that, um, that culminates three of the seven feasts in their calendar year. This is, a, this is a portion of Scripture that looks backwards at God's faithfulness in saving us out of Egypt. Looks at the present that God continually sustains us with his presence and physical provision and looks forward to a day the Messiah will come. And at the end of the Hallel, written by David in Psalm 118, 24 through 26, there's this, one of the most famous passages in scripture in all of the Old Testament for any Jew, as young as a Jewish boy, where it says, this is the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice in it. And then it says, save us. Save us now, Lord. Deliver us. Bring salvation. And then it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is important. Let me tell you when they said this particularly. The, the most famous time of the calendar year for a Jew to celebrate the Hallel and sing the Hallel and be a part of the Hallel was also in a feast. It was not the Feast of Passover. Remember, this is Passover week, it was in the Feast of Tabernacles. Passover is the first week of the Jewish calendar year. Passover, uh, sorry, Feast of Tabernacles is the last. By the way, for kids, I think the Feast of Tabernacles was the favorite. Certainly it would have been for me. You know what they did? Uh, Two million Jews in this day coming back to the city. And what they did at um, the Feast of Tabernacles is they built little thatch huts out of palm branches and other uh, leaves and and sticks. And they, and they, they were not allowed to live in their house. So everybody in Jerusalem, as well as all those coming in, they just put up these huts everywhere, all along the road, specifically on the rooftops. You saw in that picture all the flat roofs. They built huts on the roof. So you can imagine as a kid, this is so much fun. Uh, you're, you're, you're for a week or two before, you're building your little thatch hut for an entire week-long celebration. You and two million of your best friends are camping. All right, this is pretty cool. I had one little snapshot of this, by the way. My, my little sister went to Duke University. Sorry, Jeff. But uh, this is a day of great... Great concern for her, I'm sure, but uh, back when she was in college, I, I made a pact with her. She was a freshman. I said, hey, one day I want to come to a game there. It's this famous kind of game day environment before you graduate. And just one thing led to another. know, it was senior year. They had two home games left. She goes, hey, Kenan, now or never. And so I was booking my ticket to fly over to visit her and see a game, and she said, hey, don't come on game day. Come the day before the game. And I was like, what are we going to do? She was like, oh, just you'll see. So I get there the day before the game, and I come, and on this entire campus, it's just nothing, like you can't see anything, it's just tents everywhere. So what's going on? She said, this is, this, is, this, is like, this is kind of what we do, like uh, in anticipation of the big game, everyone camps out. I said, how long have y'all been camping out? She says, well, this is a big game. We've been camping out all week. Okay, and so what you do, you live in these, live, live in these little tents. By the way, you can imagine this, college campus at nighttime, like no one sleeps. They're, I mean, maybe you catch a nap during the day, during class, I don't know, but at night, like lanterns uh card games like all kind of just fun like everybody is just up having fun there's this great anticipation of this thing coming and the celebration this kind of climax culminating thing but man we're just having this was the feast of tabernacles so for jewish children this was the favorite feast of the year they couldn't wait in the last day of the feast of tabernacles last day, the, uh, the high priest would go before the people, and he would lead them on this just uh, epic parade. Two, I don't know how you get two million parading, but two million. Parading down to the pool of Siloam. He would take this chalice. He would fill it up with water, gold chalice. He would come back uh, to the altar, and there would be a, a uh, choir assembled on the temple steps, and they would sing the Hallel. And they would culminate their singing of the lel with these last verses. This is the day the Lord's mind. By the way, that meant to the Jew that this is the day. That meant that day. Like this is the day you have supernatural joy in party. This is the greatest day of the year. This is Christmas morning for our children. This is the day. Save us, Lord. This is John and his vision. Come quickly, Lord. Save us. But sa- save meant... Look backwards, by the way, he poured out this water onto the sacrifice and they remembered, when we were in the desert, God brought water out of a rock. He saved us when we were thirsty. And it meant this day, by the way, this was was late September, early October, it was right before the rains would come. If the rains didn't come, they would be in famine. So they said, save us today, Lord, bring the rains. Jerusalem gets as much rain as London in a year, but it all comes in the the month following the Feast of Tabernacles. A year's worth of rain in one month. It's gotta come or they starve. Bring the rains, poured out that cup. And they poured out one more time. And the last time they would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God saves yesterday, he saves today, but one day he'll save once and for all. He'll send Messiah the Prince. Now, you understand how significant this day, this feast, this celebration, when, when, and by the way, you know what they do? They'd wave palm branches. Victory and peace when the Messiah comes. Okay, here's Jesus coming in from the east, garnering a, 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 a foal, the colt of a donkey. He's riding upon it, and the crowds come running out from Jerusalem and running from behind and running from before, and here's the deal. It is not... September, October. It's not the Feast of Tabernacles. No, this would be like trying to go find a Christmas tree this week at Lowe's to set up for next weekend. Somebody say, Oh, whoa, oh, buddy, you're confused. Wrong celebration. Right? But they grab palm branches from the fields and they begin waving the palms and they quote the halel. They say, Bless, they say, Hosanna. That means save us now. Save us now. Like this is the fulfillment of everything we have been longing for looking forward to our prophets have talked about this is it you're it blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord again this is a messianic declaration a chorus of messianic declaration of jesus christ and um the pharisees see what's happening and they say hey jesus you better shut them up real quick because that praise they're offering you that's reserved for the Messiah. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus doesn't say, "Okay, guys, hold on, that's enough, that's enough." Jesus said, "Should they be quiet? Even the stones will cry out." This is before his ego I am moment in the garden where they says, we're looking for Christ, and he says, I am he. But this right here is a moment where he assumes the title of Messiah. He says, if they don't, creation will. Because all of creation subjected to futility hopes for, creation is personified, it hopes for something, it longs for a day when the sons of God will be revealed. They don't say it, the stones will say it. I am he. And then Jesus does something, by the way, that's recorded very clearly in the Gospel of Luke, and so is this part. Jesus approaches the city amidst the declaration of his Messiahship. And in the midst of the culminating moment of his public ministry, what, what ought to be the celebration of all celebrations, he stops and he surveys the city, and Jesus the Christ weeps. It says in Luke's gospel, he weeps. And you go, how how is he weeping? This is they're claim, they're declaring he's the Messiah. This is the long way of day. This is the greatest day. Supernatural joy. It's the fulfillment of every feast of tabernacles. Yasha, celebration. This is it. And he weeps because Jesus knows that he has not come to establish his throne forever. Not yet. He knows that he has come as a sacrificial lamb, as a Passover lamb, to be sacrificed. He knows he's walking to his death like a lamb to the slaughter. And by the way, he's not weeping because he's going to die. He's weeping because they're going to die. He's weeping because their hearts are hardened. And from the beginning of his ministry, Matthew nine, when he looks out at the people as uh, sheep with no shepherd, as those harassed and helpless, his heart splagnitzomai it burst open. To the very final moments of his time on this earth, as he hangs on the cross, and he says, "Father, forgive them; they know not what they do." Beginning to end, you see the compassion of Jesus. You see his heart for those who are hard hearted towards. The mercy of God. And he weeps. They have missed the day of their visitation. That's what he says. That's what he says in Luke's gospel. Well, as you might imagine, the Romans were unimpressed with his arrival. The, the Jewish authorities were angry. There was such a mob and such a following, they couldn't just kill him. And, and frankly, he, he interrupted their, um, their, their pompous procession of themselves. He interrupted their building of their own kingdoms and their own names. As a matter of fact, they were using his father's house, the temple, to make money off all of the trading and buying of animals that was going on. He literally inconvenienced their pursuit of the things of this world with his arrival. But the most striking thing that I think can go easily unnoticed and that might grieve me the most is these crowds, these crowds that came out to meet him. Again, it it was the talk of, it's not like nobody knew, like everyone was wondering, will he show? Here he comes, the throngs, everyone knew that they are chanting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of like this is no secret, they they are chanting, he's the one. Five days later. It's not the exact same crowd, I'm sure, but again, all of Jerusalem is focused on this man and this mission and this moment, and the crowds gather again, the throngs in the wee hours, and they chant something, and it's entirely different. Five days later, they're chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And all week long, I was asking, why? And I may not be smart enough to figure it out, but what I think is that they were disappointed. They were disappointed in his arrival. They had hopes that his coming would immediately make their lives more comfortable would immediately free them from oppression, would, would, physically, would, would immediately in his coming remove their suffering, their persecution, everything they must endure, like, like the hardship would be gone. The kingdom would be here. And when it didn't, when he didn't immediately improve their condition in a material, tangible way, they were disappointed. Disappointed. They said, we'll wait for the next guy. You can do away with this one. And So they, they killed him. And they thought that was the end. The Jews thought it was the end. The Romans thought it was the end. It would have been the end had it not been for three days later. We're going to talk next week about what happened then. But I don't want to tell the story of his coming to the city, his triumphal entry. I don't want to merely tell this story without at least pointing to the story that this story points to. Like, he came to die. Just as the prophets said he would. He had to. But understand that every promise of God is a yes in Jesus Christ. Everyone has been fulfilled or will be fulfilled. And the prophets also say he will come and he will establish his throne and he will reign. Can I tell you what Revelation says? There's gonna be a day where Jesus Christ comes again from the east. And look what the text says in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, now when he comes in that day, he will not be on a donkey. He has come gentle, righteous, and having salvation. He has extended the mercy of God. That anyone that understands their separation and trust in him will be covered by the blood of the lamb. This is the day that grace is offered. The day is coming where judgment will be threshed out. And it says the one sitting on this white horse is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I want to tell you something, Harvest, that today we are merely sojourners. We're merely passing through a strange land with strange kings. That day we go home. Today is the day we see in part. That day is the day we see in full. Today is the day we suffer. Today we are persecuted. Today we are called to endure. That day he wipes every tear from our eye. Every infirmity will go away. Every tragedy, everything that we grieve in a sin-stained world will no longer be then. Today I grieve the loss of an earthly father. That day my sons meet him. That day everything is made new. Don't confuse the days as they did when they grew disappointed with Christ. That day, church, every promise, already cl- declared to be a yes in Christ, will be fulfilled. And can I tell you what we'll do in that day? I'll tell you what we'll do. Um, I like you guys, I'm curious about heaven. I've read the books, I've meditated, I've wondered, I've prayed. I don't know what all heaven entails. I, entails. I think it's more than, than merely a, uh, an everlasting eternal song. Um, based on evidence in the scripture, I think we do some other stuff. Eat, drink, play baseball. I think there's other things going on. But I, but I will say, I will say that um, there's gonna be a great time that never must end of us doing what our heart desires, and that's praising Jesus. There are songs given us in Revelation that are songs of glory, like we can practice them now. And one of the songs, my favorite, is found in Revelation 7. I love it because it's led by the martyrs. It's led by those who gave their lives and and they rise up and sing a song. And, and, And look at this. It says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Yashana, Salvation belongs to our God! who sits on the throne and to the lamb. The one who came to be slaughtered that he might come again to reign. He has saved us. And we will sing of the salvation of Messiah the Prince. And we'll never quit singing. C.S. Lewis says when that day comes, Every day as we know it is no longer. When the author comes onto the stage, the play's over. He says, when that day comes, many will desire to choose Christ. He said, you're unable to choose Christ in that day. He said, "Uh, that's like choosing to, to sit down when it has become impossible to stand up. In that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. This is the day for choosing him. That day we recognize whom we have chosen. And he says for some it will be a day of great horror and for others of sheer delight. I have no doubt that when he comes some will be disappointed. They'll be disappointed that they received Christ and put him in the passenger seat. They'll be disappointed. Disappointed they received and then rejected. And there will be many that are inconvenienced, that immediately it halts all of their great and glorious worldly pursuits of building their own kingdom on this earth. It'll end. And none will be unimpressed. This day, this triumphal entry we've read about, is to stir our affections for that day that we live every one of these days accordingly. I want to tell you that you you don't have to wait till Easter Sunday to choose Christ. Um, You know what Jesus did at the very last Feast of Tabernacles he attended? Six months before this. He was there, faithful Jew, living in a tent somewhere, living in a hut, thatch hut on somebody's rooftop. And on that seventh day, they went to the pool of Siloam. And they gathered the water, and they brought it back to the steps, and they sang the Hillel. And it says in John 7 that Jesus stood up and shouted out, pouring out the water. If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, from him will flow rivers of living water. I can say it no better. If anyone is thirsty, come to Jesus. We're going to have a time of communion to end our service. I'm going to ask our ministry team right now to come up and stand in the gaps front and back. The idea of this time is for us to all come to Jesus. If you've never acknowledged him as Lord and Savior, as Messiah the Prince, and you want to to make him yours, you want to receive him today, receive his Lordship, uh, we would ask you to come. If you're thirsty, come. We'd love to pray. We'd love you to talk to one of these folks that are being assembled. We'd love to pray over you, pray for you. We'd love to take communion with you. For any of you that know Jesus, we still are invited to come to him this morning. We come to a table that has symbols of his body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sin. We come to Jesus. Father, thank you that you are good and that you are so gracious and in the eternal redemptive plan that you have foreseen from ages past, from eternity past, you have chosen to love us in the midst of our rebellion. In Christ, we don't get what we deserve, judgment. In Christ, we get what we don't deserve, everlasting life, an abundant life, victorious life. We live in a victory that is coming because it is as sure as today. So we are victorious in Jesus. Or anyone that's here today that doesn't feel victorious, that feels lonely and empty, ashamed of their sin, thirsty, for righteousness that they know as well as I do we cannot attain. May they simply heed the words that you gave. Come to me. You'll never thirst again. May they come in Jesus' name. Amen.